Good evening. Um, Tonight we're reading Psalm 51, and in the Church Bibles it's page 573. So Psalm 51, starting at the first verse. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So, let's open with a prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. We have before us this evening a psalm, a psalm for forgiveness of sins. It's a prayer of David and we're given the details of the sin right at the start. And if it wasn't for those details right at the start, we probably wouldn't know exactly what sin David was referring to in this psalm. Um, So, we have a psalm that can teach us about how we can pray for forgiveness. Now, with a a set prayer like this, and such a a personal subject like forgiveness, because all our sins are going to be something personal that we have done, um, it may be a little bit perplexing to have a set prayer. How can you have a set prayer to pray for forgiveness when what you've done is going to need an awful lot of confession uh, when you're confessing a sin. Um, 
And so I find myself a little bit confused about set prayers, but it's the basis of how we worship in the Church of England, that we have a liturgy. Um, If you come across to the 8 o'clock service, um, as uh, I did this morning, um, you would follow the liturgy in this this book here. Um, And of course, we have a slightly different liturgy um, in the evening service here. So again, we have almost a formula that we follow a precept formula. So how can we have a precept formula and yet this be a prayer for forgiveness and that we could use this prayer um, to help us in our prayers for forgiveness? Well, when you look at the disciples, they asked Jesus for a prayer and Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer. So it was obviously important to Jesus and we know that John the Baptist had given a prayer to his disciples. So biblically speaking, Prayers like this one here, Psalm 51, are very important and therefore uh, we need to make sure that we make good use of them. And I would say the same of the liturgy that we use in the Church of England. It is very good. It is prayerfully thought out before it was put together. And that is important in guiding um, our service. So let's have a look at Psalm 51. And certainly what struck me straight away when I looked at this, um, now I've got to see whether this is going to work, was praise, praising God. Now, it seems a bit ironic, but I've never heard so much praise in a service as has been in this one. It's been fantastic for praise. Um, But uh, uh, just bear with me uh, what I'm trying to to say with this. Uh, But we start with David praising God. He's woven it within this psalm. He starts in verse 1, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. He's defining the qualities of God which are most relevant to forgiveness. They are the qualities that are really relevant to David when he's saying this prayer. He goes on further on. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He's saying that God is right to be able to judge him. He has done wrong. He's in the right position. He's telling us later on in verse 6, you taught me wisdom. And verse 7, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He's telling us in this prayer that God has the power to wash our sin away. So what, um, oh, there's verse 12 as well. Uh, Restore me to the joy of your salvation. God can give him joy. He can have the joy of salvation back and be forgiven. So he's defining in praise the qualities of God which are most relevant to the um, situation he's in in terms of his sins. Why I was really, really struck with this I looked at my own prayers to see how often I praise God. I found I never, ever praise God. I will give uh, thanksgiving, I will thank God for things, but I never saw in my prayers um, praise. So I set myself the task since Christmas when I knew I was doing this, uh, uh, preaching on this passage, to see what happened in Bishop Hannington. And only once in the past, I think it was six weeks, did someone come here and started praising God in the prayers, in corporate praise, at the prayers that uh, I, I witnessed at least. And I thought it was interesting. What we've done as a church, or as a church, Church of England, we've pushed most of our praise into the songs and into spoken liturgy. Um, 
which, if you follow the words of St. Augustine, he said, he who, pray, uh, he who sings prays twice. Then in our songs, it's the same as praying. But I thought it was interesting that we have pushed praise aside. Um, and yet, I think it was wonderful reading Psalm 150, praise God, praise God, and defining qualities of God that are, are praiseworthy uh, in our lives and applying to our situation. So here it is subtle. Um, it's uh, not as subtle as it is in the Lord's Prayer. We have hallowed be thy name. It starts again with praise of God. And I think that it has to be really important to put God at the forefront of our prayers, to praise God, because I think it puts the perspective of our relationship with God right. David in this psalm is in a desperate, dire situation, and I'll spell it out as we, we go through this. And he is desperate. He needs God to uh, wash him whiter than snow. Um, he's in a real mess. So it puts it in perspective. He is giving God honor because he has seriously dishonored God in his sin. So it gives God reverence and respect. And I think like dropping a ball, once you give God respect... It does put our sin in perspective. We start to see that we are sinful. Um, and a preacher once put it uh, like this, that uh, I think that this preacher had a white cat and they thought the cat was ever so white until he saw it in some snow and realized that cat wasn't white at all. Uh, the snow was so much whiter. And we may think we're doing pretty well, but when we put ourselves with respect to God's perfection, suddenly... If we thought we were a white cat, we are a dirty, dirty cat. Um, and so it convicts us of our sin. Our sin becomes apparent and more uh, apparent and real to us. In the psalm, we get no details of the sin. And as I said right at the start, we wouldn't actually know what the sin was that this is referring to if we hadn't got the uh, statement here um, at right at the start. So we have no details of the sin, but if you think of what this was, it was a song. And if you were singing a song, it, it really wouldn't work if you were singing about adultery and murder in a song um, in a church or in the, the synagogue. Um, so it seems right that it doesn't get mentioned what the sin is, but also um, it means we can all use this for any sin that uh, we are committing, committed, um, because it's now relevant, because it doesn't have a specific sin to it. When we move on to uh, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It may seem a little bit surprising, sinned only against God. What David has done, he's murdered Uriah and he's uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. So surely he has sinned against them. So I set myself the task to find out uh, how can this be a true statement. And in fact, if you look at the word sin, um, of the thousand plus references to sin in the Bible, sin is always with reference to God, except in two instances that I could find at least. And both those instances, it was between people um, two people, I think Reuben says that he's sinned against uh, Joseph, and the word is different from the word um, that is used for sin in atonement or in virtually every other place in the Bible. 
And another interesting reference to the sin, uh, to sin, if you look at the, the Lord's prayers, the two Lord's prayers in Matthew, Jesus says, trespass, forgive us our trespasses as we tr- forgive those who trespass against us. And if we look in Luke, it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. So Luke actually is spelling a different relationship between how we uh, sin against people as we understand it now. Um, And I put it down to really, it's a little bit of the simplicity of the English language. It's like only having one word for love when uh, Hebrew seems to have so many different words for love. So sin is against God. David has sinned against God and his sin is always before him. Um, And we get the statements following uh, on, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from my time the mother conceived me. And so we have a series of statements about how we are caught and locked in sin. So we'll come back to, uh, uh, oh, it, it follows on and goes on about the sin, talks about the sin, and then it starts to move towards a very Old Testament framework, because this is a psalm, we've talked, it does refer to sacrifices, and that would have made a lot of sense to people in the Old Testament. Let's have a little look at what sin David has actually committed. And I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. But um, David's seen Bathsheba from the roof of his palace. He's arranged to meet her, they've had sexual intercourse, and now she is pregnant. To try and cover his tracks, what David has done is try to get Uriah, her husband, back from the front line, fighting battles for Israel, and he wants him to sleep with his wife so he can cover his tracks, and Uriah would be able to say that the child was his. Now, what really comes out as a very nasty part to the story is that Uriah comes across as being a really honorable man, that he won't sleep with his wife while his fellow soldiers are serving in the army. And so David, to cover his tracks, the sin just gets worse and worse. He decides to have um, Uriah killed in an accident. And then he marries Bathsheba. Now he's already got eight wives. Uh, Well, listed in the Bible, he has eight wives by the end of his life and 19 sons. So he wasn't exactly desperate for a wife. So it's not until Nathan comes before him and gives him this allegorical, allegorical story that David then suddenly condemns himself. He doesn't realize he's tricked into saying, whoever's done this deed needs to be uh, killed. And suddenly he realizes through Nathan that actually it's him that has done this deed. He sees the logic. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments, I don't know whether any hasn't broken there. This is an absolutely catastrophic sin. And I, I don't know if there's many people on this earth who could commit a worse sin. And I say that because... It's recorded in the Bible, and from now on, the ripples of this sin go through history for centuries. That if you were a, a despot and you wanted to justify killing someone, you might look at this passage and say, well, David could do it, so why can't I do it? And perhaps King Herod justified what he did from this type of uh, thing. He's dishonored God. He's dishonored his family. He's lied. He's had someone murdered. He's committed adultery. And stolen Uriah's life away from him. So 
he has sinned uh, big time, really. Now, sin is sin. If we lie, it's just as bad as this sin here. But the problem with this sin is it teaches other people to sin. And it has ripples through the whole of the Israel society. And it has uh, consequences, major consequences. So it's obvious why David needs to pray and Uh, Well, he needs to really, really pray and uh, to get washed clean by God. And this is what this psalm, the subject of this psalm. And it is, David is so despicable in this, it's actually quite hard in some ways to forgive what he has done. But we must do. But a sin like this casts a massive shadow over um, someone's life. And two illustrations of this. Over Christmas, I noticed there was a couple of series of Top of the Pops from the 70s on, uh, which I wa- watched quite eagerly. But I noticed not one of them had Jimmy Savile. He may have, um, I think it's estimated, he raised over £30 million, but all of his, his deeds all of, are just sponged away by his crimes. I don't think we'll ever see a Top of the Pops episode repeated on television. He will never be forgiven in terms of society's eyes, for his, his sin. Think of the story, Christmas Carol, Scrooge. If I asked you, what is Scrooge famous for? You would all say, for being a miser. And oddly enough, it's the one thing he's not famous for. It's because all we do is remember his sin. He's actually famous for being redeemed, because he turns away. It wouldn't be a very good story if he was just a mean person throughout the whole story. But because he's redeemed, it makes the story quite attractive, interesting. But all we remember is his sin. Sin casts a massive shadow. And the shadow is far, far bigger the more powerful you are, particularly in a church setting. But we must forgive. And we must think of Scrooge as being uh, forgiven uh, in that story. I know he's a fictional character. So what... A take-home message as we develop this uh, passage is, what does forgiveness actually look like? Well, I said it's difficult to forgive, but what does it look like? Well, for God, we find out in verse 12, uh, when we're forgiven by God, we're joyful. We get God's joy. The salvation joy is back with us in verse 12. It allows us, in verse 15, it tells us we can praise God. Um, we break out in song, verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, and you will deliver my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. We can sing. Um, but also, we can teach other people your ways, God's ways. Then I will teach transgressors, verse 13, your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. It actually brings us to evangelism. And one of the aspects we would be teaching others is God's forgiveness and Jesus picks up on it um, in Matthew 18 that Jesus says to his disciples this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart we have to forgive what we've been given the grace of God the forgiveness that this prayer opens up for us and what the death of Christ and his resurrection open up for us that forgiveness means we have to forgive other people. And it can be very difficult. My two illustrations show straight away that it can be very difficult to forgive 
people. But one sign that we are forgiven is that we can forgive others. So that's, and I'm drawing that all out from that passage here where part in 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And that what David has, is, is starting to uh, be inspired with is realizing that we can teach others the way to God. And part of that is how we act and how we can forgive others as he has been forgiven by God. In Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? He's trying to limit it, it seems, because almost thinking, oh, enough's enough. I mean, David's committed this horrendous sin. Is God going to say that? Sorry, David, that's enough. Um, and Peter's asking, how many times should I? And Jesus extends it. And no matter how many times you think you should uh, forgive a brother, you should forgive them more. Forgiveness should be relentless. And we know it should be relentless because we need it to be relentless. Because as David has said here, that his sin is always before him. And it's always before us. We are always being caught in sin in our lives. I've painted a picture of David being despicable. But if you think about it, Jesus said in Matthew 5... We may not have killed someone like David has, but we've hated people. And Jesus said, in God's eyes, you've done the same. You may not have stolen something from someone, but we've desired what they have. may not have committed adultery, but we've looked at others with desiring eyes. Jesus taught us that those acts make us just as guilty as those who've done them. So David's despicable. It was a horrible crime, but we are just as despicable. So that's why I put that little picture of uh, the character from Despicable Me. There is no place to hide. We can't feel smug and think, oh, we'll never commit a sin like David has. We are committing sins, and according to Jesus, we have committed sins. So we are just as despicable in the way we treat God as David was here. So, what have we learned? That looks pitifully small from here. It looked fine on my laptop, but I've learned from this that I don't think I pray properly. I don't give God respect. And certainly since Christmas, I have been making a real effort to praise God in my prayers. And I am sure that is the right thing to do, the right thing in the relationship, all of the prayers this prayer, particularly 51, tells us we should be praising God and thanking him for what he has done for us. I think we shouldn't underestimate the, the, the effectiveness of these prayers, the prayers given in the Bible. They have that perfect balance of praise, thanksgiving, and confession. And I think the same thought and prayer has gone into the Church of England liturgy and how we uh, respond in our services. So we shouldn't underestimate how um, effective and prayerful those can be. No one is without sin. What should forgiveness look like? Well, it brings us joy, but it should make us want to share the gospel with other people. 
And it should also make us want to forgive other people because God has forgiven us. So it should be an outpouring. And yes, we are all despicable. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's only through the death of Christ and his resurrection that we can be forgiven and restored and made whiter than snow. As uh, David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And we are washed in the blood of Christ. And that is the only way we can stand before God.